I know a little bit about you, but people that might be listening might not know anything about you. So it'd be nice to uh, get a little bit of background. Who is Andreas Lagopoulos? Coach and founder of Uncharted Kite Sessions. I am a kiteboarding coach and a rider, and I take people from beginners to pros uh, to better kiting skills. So that's how you identify yourself. Oh, how I identify myself and what I do for a living aren't necessarily the same thing. I identify myself as just uh, someone looking to make other people's lives better, more enriched, better experiences, and lead a happy, simple life with a puppy on the beach. Pretty simple. But this whole, okay, so you're a kiteboard, you have the kiteboarding business of adventure trips, and you also are a coach yourself. Though, how did you, you weren't doing this forever. Like, what uh, were you no, doing before I this? I've been a coach forever. Uh, I've been a coach. I've had in charge kite sessions for the last seven years. Uh, but I've been an athlete forever. And I have been a coach for a long time in different sports. Uh, I've been an athlete since I started swimming competitively at eight years old. Went from uh, national level swimming to national level water polo to competing for national level triathlon and then raced World Cup mountain bike uh, until I was almost 25. So from eight years old to 25, I was always at a high level of sport, always had high level coaches. So I've had Olympic level coaching uh, so I can appreciate what a good coach does. And then as you, as I got higher in sport, it's just a natural progression. You mentor people below you, athletes below you, younger athletes, because they just naturally look up to you and you're sharing a pool with them or you're riding a bike with them or you're, you're out training with people who are younger. So you just naturally learn to coach them. And then when I moved on from being an athlete, I was in restaurants and hotels for many years. And then I was a carpenter building custom homes for many years. And the whole time that I was still doing uh, the adult in life, I uh, still played high level water polo in Montreal. So I was always still involved with sports and coaching and coaching other players. And it was just a natural progression to, become a full-time coach and then embrace my passion more, which was kiteboarding and just being out in the ocean and sharing experiences with other people. And how did you, okay. So I didn't know about your eight to 25 year old life of like being sports <laughs> sports. Yeah. I didn't know that. Cause I remember you mentioned to me a little bit about the hotel side that you're working in sort of that industry yeah. and also um, I think you were mentioning something about, kitchen well i'm uh when i was eight to 25 i had three things in my life i had the yeah. family sport and i work which the work i knew was my family job so oh, okay my family my dad is a restaurateur for what he does for his passion and fun but by trade he's an architect oh, okay. so my entire lifetime was trained for competitions going to school or working either in the family restaurant or in the family construction site. So these were the three things I learned in my youth and then carried those through into adulthood. So uh, when I was 25, uh, it was the start of extreme sports. So the uh, Bobby Browns of skiing who make uh, millions of dollars a year and uh, the Sean Whites and those were few and far between. Extreme sports was not the payroll paycheck that it is today. Yeah. So 
when I finally stopped doing high level sports, it's essentially because of a paycheck. Uh, there were very few people. Red Bull didn't exist. Red Bull sports didn't exist. Uh, I made my bulk of my money through winning competitions, through yeah. getting uh, sponsorships, but sponsorships in the day were your gear was essentially free. They didn't really give you much beyond that. Yeah. And as a national level athlete in Canada, you get to compete for Canada, you become a carded athlete, you can get some money for that from uh, the government of Canada. But essentially I was living on. Did you get that though? The, the, the Canada support? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Canada support. Uh, cause I competed in mountain biking for Canada. And so, but that's, a thousand dollars a month <laughs> you know yeah. it doesn't really add up to uh, a tremendous uh, flow of cash so at 25 i had the choice of becoming a professional and then went into restaurants and hotels which i knew well from doing it my whole life and then did that for a decade and then uh, uh, had always loved doing construction was doing that on the side for fun anyways and just naturally flowed from one into the others i got more skilled in construction got a project management uh, degree uh, after my university degree and so I have a project management certificate and it just in project management taking my courses I met a lot of people in construction okay and so it's uh you shake a lot of hands open a lot of doors but, did yeah. so I didn't know you went to I was guessing you probably went to university most people that are I don't know what's um, that generation but let's say people that are now let's say 40 years old 50 years old Plus, they most of them went to university and actually got a degree. I think now it's like the younger guys that it's not as common. Like some people don't get it at all, and some people get it. But um, so that university degree then I guess meant something like it helped back in the day to get things moving. No, yes, yes, and no. So I have a degree uh, in psychology and conflict resolutions. What? So, <laughs> am I going to be a psychologist? No. But yeah. it helps me in my coaching because I understand people really well. Yeah. So it allows me to alter my coaching and how I perceive people. Conflict resolution degree also has been very helpful in negotiations, whether it's for my business, uh, friendships, relationships, uh, to understand people. Uh, so that's, I didn't take the degree. I didn't get the degree to become a professional in that field. Yeah. Uh, I was drawn to those uh, majors because of just understanding humans. I like understanding humans and how they tick. Yeah. And uh, the biggest thing I would say I got out of my degree was learning how to communicate properly. Uh, when you, especially in psychology, you write a lot of papers, right? You write yeah. a lot of analysis of behaviors of whatever. And so to finally get your ideas out on paper properly and to write something that's succinct, specific, and that can make sense. That's, that's the biggest thing I learned in university is how to get a thought out properly, make my thoughts clear without over speaking or over writing. So. That's why you're a pretty good writer, I'm guessing. Yeah, exactly. It, it help, definitely helps with writing. I always enjoyed writing when I was a kid, I used to do a lot of creative writing, but, uh, Writing uh, four years worth of university psychology papers definitely uh, teaches you to write a lot better. And same thing, writing conflict resolution papers, how to, essentially most of my courses in conflict resolutions were um, uh, 
role-playing scenarios. So you'd always break up into groups and you'd have someone in the other class who was the arbitrator and you would be the union boss and you'd have a theoretical problem that you'd have to solve and then you'd have to write a paper on it and why you come to these conclusions. And so, is university good? Hard to say. Should I have stayed in Whistler and not gone back to university and followed my dream there? That's the, t that's the question of the day because I actually quit. I went to high school, left for five years and then went back to university. So, oh, okay. So you're like working in the, you're just working for those five years after high school. I was a professional athlete. I was just training athlete. in racing and training in racing. I lived in Whistler. I, uh, during the days I either downhill skied or cross country skied, depending on what I wanted for my leg strength. So cross country skiing was cardio was great for mountain biking, yeah. downhill skiing. Obviously it was a lot more fun mm -hmm. and, uh, it provided you with the power. So if you ski downhill, ski, I like to ski downhill no matter whether with the terrain and super G turns all the time. And so I, that provides a tremendous amount of load on the legs because it's like doing squats, like doing heavy squats. Yeah. So when you do a lot of heavy, hard skiing, it's, it gives you that power, that boost that you need for mountain biking. So I would live in Whistler in the winters and train and uh, tune skis at night because living as a pro athlete back then wasn't much. So I would just tune skis at night. Yeah. on the midnight tuning ski shift and then soon as what is tuning skis what is uh <laughs> tuning skis uh tuning skis uh, uh do like is it the because i'm not a skier so is it just like waxing them and all this or is it everything else? so uh, i worked in a ski tuning shop in a basement of one of the hotels at the fairmont hotel in whistler we had in the garage a uh, so in the main floor of the hotel there was uh, a ski shop and they yeah. had rentals and sales and other. And then in the basement, they had a ski tuning uh, equipment. So uh, ski tuning machines, the ones I would use were called winter staggers and they were like $60,000 machines. Yeah. And uh, they did a combination of grinding the bases, grinding the edges, uh, resetting the bases. And so depending on the shape of the ski, if the ski is like in really good shape, all you have to do is do a light grinding or maybe a stone grinding to set a pattern in the base. So bases of skis get patterns which when you ski over something it melts water just enough so you get a flow of water under your ski so depending on the pattern that you put in the base will flow the water differently and it'll make your ski perform differently so and then the eight edges and Do how snowboards have that as well yep. or no yep. oh, yeah, yep. same. exactly right. yeah they're all tuned the same and then uh, the sharpness of your edge and how you detune it in the length so there's a lot to tuning the ski and then there's repairs people hit rocks they tear out an edge so you're doing everything from just fine touch tuning to full ski repairs. And so most people, the ski hill closes at four o'clock. People come back from Mapre Ski. They drop off their skis between four and six. And I would work from uh, 6 p.m. till midnight in a yeah. basement with heavy metal playing on the machine and like airplane earphones on because the machines are quite loud after a while and just <laughs> tuning skis and eating Subway subs until I uh, went home get up at 6 a.m. and go for first chair of, uh, on Whistler, ride powder from first chair until lunch, go home, eat some more lunch, take a little nap, get up, go back ski tuning. So. so that was like an interesting time in a way, an exciting time. That was. Or in the uh, moment, it didn't seem like it. In the moment, it just seemed like a grind. No, not at all. That was, if, I, I'm on the path that I'm on now with Uncharted Kite Sessions. Yeah. Uh, because of a, 
my life changed in this direction to come on Uncharted, but this is an extension of the life that I had in Whistler. It's exactly that. Uh, my boss uh, at Whistler Backroads is the founder of X Games. Okay. So, Tess, uh, Tess Sewell is a great guy, worked for him for one summer, and uh, he went off to Aspen, started X Games. And so I was with the, the forefront runners of extreme sports. And unfortunately, uh, as you say, people over 40 years old have the university degrees. It's because they are pushed towards that direction, right? Yeah. Uh, because the opportunities of sports and marketing didn't exist in those days. So it was like, well, you know, you've gone as far as you can as an athlete. You're 25 years old. You're pretty old for an athlete. Whereas yeah. now athletes go till they're well into their thirties. Yeah. But when I was 25 years old, 25 was like, okay, you're old for an athlete. You know, mm -hmm. your body's going to be worn out. So uh, Whistler was the start. I, I have so many friends in Whistler still who have mountain bike companies, who have uh, ski companies, who are the first... People the pioneers. The, the pioneers, you know? The guys who started X Games, the guys who changed pro extreme sports. So I love those years in Worcester. I wish, uh, some of me wishes I never spent those uh, 15 years in between Whistler and here uh, doing other things. But uh, life is, gives you that. And I can do my job well now because of the experiences I've had in hotels, in restaurants, in university. So, yeah, it's, uh, I guess it's interesting in a way, like when you sort of look back on it, you know, you're like, if you'd have, what happens if you'd have taken left or what happens if you'd have taken right? And 100%. That was a massive crossroads in my life. Uh, and I'm happy that I got back onto the path that I'm on. I really enjoyed the professional life living in Montreal and uh, had a woodworking company after uh, restaurants, opened restaurants that had been top 50 in the world in Condé Nast days. So I reached the top level of hotel and restaurants and I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. Montreal is one of the most amazing cities in the world. If you're in that uh, milieu of dining and entertainment, there's one New York, Paris, a few cities come close to Montreal, especially is Montreal. Miami considered in that list as well. For sure. Miami is in, the, in that list. Montreal is a, a, a boom in town, you know, but the, those yeah. are the handful of cities around the world that are, are really spectacular. So I don't regret any of that by any means. I whew, had the greatest time in the world. So yeah, it's been a fun life so far. And with that, like, with everything that's happened in your life and then those 15 years of sort of working, what made you do the shift? Like what made you change to where you are now? Uh, Anything in specific or? Yeah, right, I right. stepped on a rockfish got paralyzed, lost a year and a half of my life, and had to learn how to walk again. And so that sort of changed everything really quick. Or did you, wait, so you stepped on a rockfish, like a stonefish, the same thing? Yeah, stonefish, exactly the same thing. And that thing got you paralyzed? Yeah, uh, through a series of unfortunate events, uh, it poisoned me, and then it actually became a bone infection in my spine that was misdiagnosed uh, and uh, deteriorated to the point where I had uh, serious uh, complications. So, this country or in which country? No, in in Montreal. I, I stepped on rockfish uh, while kiteboarding in Cuba, and uh, I had was flying back in the day, uh, five line kite, and I dropped my kite and it flipped over on itself, and the center line went through because you know when a kite yeah. inverts itself on a five line, you can't relaunch it. 
So I had to uh, self self rescue, pulled in my kite, and while walking across the reef, stepped on a stonefish, punctured my foot, got poisoned. Uh, went through that actually pretty fine. My foot flared up, and I was pretty sick for a couple of days, not feeling yeah. great. But then that actually went back, and it was just a weird series of events that set in a entry point for uh, a bacterial infection, which set in slowly. And then I was back in Montreal working and my back just got worse and worse and started getting more and more sore. And I kept uh, inquiring about it and uh, went to my osteopath said, yeah, something's not right here. My chiro said something wasn't right. My massage therapist said something wasn't right. And then I'd go to the hospital and they uh, would look at me and they wouldn't touch me. They would just take blood tests and go, no, blood work looks fine. You're fine. And they'd send me home. And this happened slowly and over months, literally, until uh, I couldn't walk. And then uh, I had uh, such an infection on my spine that it finally pushed through my anterior cavity on my spine and pushed on my spinal cord and cut off the signal one day. And then I ended up in the hospital for an MRI and they took a, finally took an MRI and they're like, wow, you got a growth the size of a football on your spine. <laughs> and uh, yeah, you think? Yeah. So, then uh, life started over. So you said that the doctors only did blood work. They didn't touch you. You think if they would have touched you, it would have been different? Like they would have felt around or something? Like how, 100%. Would they, would they have been able to prevent you something? Feel, you could actually feel the growth on my spine. Gotcha. So that's how I knew I had something. I had arc, my chiropractor, my uh, massage therapist would massage me be like, this isn't your kidneys. I don't know what this is, but this is like not your kidneys. It's not like any of your organs back here, but you're, you're getting a push on your spine here. And so my infection was quite unique in that I had quite unique blood work. Um, the, nat the normal markers for infection weren't, marker weren't were normal. They were within normal markers. Yeah. So it was only when I took final specialty blood work for uh, what are called CRP and ESR, which are a protein in your blood, that I was uh, a thousand times the average level. And they were like, oh, geez, you're... So that means you're trying to fight something off. Yeah, yeah, your CRP and ESR should be nine or should be like 12 over six or something like that. And mine was 1,800 over 900. So it was a, it was a unique uh, situation. situation. Once they saw that, they were like, holy crap. And then they did a... <laughs> then they did a... Uh, but then they did a MRI, saw that, and then they uh, wanted to remove my spine after that. So that was interesting. Jesus. Imagine if that would have happened. Yeah, no, that was my uh, diagnosis was to remove my spine because it had been so infected and replace it with uh, plastic blocks and put me in a wheelchair for the rest of my life. Yeah, not my solution. Not my type of solution. Exactly. So it's always important to be your own uh, advocate with medical doctors. Uh, yep. they, are, they know what they're doing and they don't know what they're doing at the same time. They're very learned. I wouldn't be here today walking without my doctor's help for sure. Once yep. the infection was figured out and, and, the, and the type of infection it was without antibiotics, there's no homeopathic medicine that would have gotten me healthy. It was antibiotics. You know, it was medical help. But it's 
beyond that, it's the healing process that you have to undertake in yourself that uh, modern medicine isn't quite so up to par on. And you can learn. Like when I was originally diagnosed, they were going to remove my spine and it went from removing my spine to never walking again to when I would start to walk, well, you'll never walk properly. Well, you'll never do this. And every step I took forward, they're like, well, that's as far as you're going to heal. And I'd be like, no, you could probably do a little bit better. Mm-hmm. And I would heal more. And they're like, well, it's as far as you're going to heal. So uh, have faith that your body can heal and push it. So it's like you need to, well, I guess for us, it's at least for myself, I sort of realize it's like you need to feel your body out and then sort of like take what someone tells you and then relate it back to what you're feeling and then sort of make a, your own little diagnosis from that, you know? And for sure, the antibiotics and some modern medicines can help, but uh, that's not uh, always the case, you know? It's like you need to, because imagine if, that, I've heard that happen before, right? Where people are like, oh, we're going to, they just remove stuff. You know, it's like the easy, for them, they're just like trying to find easy solutions that uh, that they can do within an operation or whatever, you know? And they're like, oh, we just remove it and you're sitting. And then they say they did a good job because you're sitting and you're alive still. <laughs> but they it's don't really a, try to. It's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy with medicine and uh, having, you know, for, for a couple of months, I stayed in the hospital after the, paralysis in my legs and saw the average patient and what they go through and what they believe. Yeah. And it's a self-fulfilling prophecy because doctors will say, well, this is what you have. This is what you can expect. And this is your, your recovery. And yeah. so people get to that recovery point and then they say, well, this is as far as the doctor says I'm going to get. So I guess this is it. And they just sort yeah. of sit in that spot. And, uh, did your doctor push you further or no? Or oh, your no, doctor? my doctors, uh, my uh, neurologist, my uh, spinal surgeon were all like, don't do yoga. Like, it's a mistake. And I'm like, well, have you ever done yoga? They're like, no, but don't do it. And I'm like, well, if you've never done it, you don't know what I can do. Yeah. So um, I was told I would never recover from what I've had. Uh, good luck or bad luck. I've actually had many other injuries and being a ski racer, mountain mountain bike racing, you get a lot of injuries. So I've already blown my ACLs a few times. I've crushed my hand. I've I've had some obstacles in recovery uh, in my past. So I knew that the body can recover. It's, it's just a question of pushing it and recovery is painful and recovery is hard. Uh, Many days in recovery, I swore like a pirate uh, at the pain. Yeah. Uh, but that's the only way you are going to get to your goal and get to where you want to get to because your body is, is unbelievable and how it can recover. If you let it, if you give it the food, the energy, the right uh, techniques, whether for my recoveries, I've done everything from the master cleanse to float tanks, to massages, to acupuncture. Uh, Which one worked the best or everything. They all work. They all work to the yeah. point when I was uh, really recovering with my spinal injury uh, a couple times a week, I would go for a two hour massage and walk straight out of there and go into a two hour float tank, a two hour sensory deprivation tank because uh, it's been studied that uh, one hour in a deprivation tank is equivalent to one week's worth of REM sleep. And REM sleep is when you uh, secrete all your hormones. So your uh, organ building or growth building hormones come out in your REM sleep. So if you can do one hour of uh, float tank, that's an, a week's worth of recovery. So I would do four hours of float tank a week 
in order and straight after a massage so straight after a stimulation of that area yeah. with, uh, an ultrasound machine during the massage i'd go straight into a float tank and just float there for two hours and uh all these things helped all these things were, were massive contributors to uh recovery uh recovery also costs money unfortunately yeah. i would trade, how did you fund that i trade i went through all my savings and then as a uh, carpenter it was quite uh, fortuitous my massage therapist was also a landlord and had a bunch of uh, Airbnb condos all over Montreal so I would trade her carpentry work for massages <laughs> so I tiled all of her bathrooms uh, did a bunch of kitchens I did stuff like that uh, because I had not didn't have the energy to go back onto the construction site full-time yeah. because my back was still so sensitive but I could I could put out three, four hours in a day and just, you know, go in and she was in no rush on new projects. So we yeah. just trade that off. And uh, Did the um, massage therapist also have the sensory deprivation tank or that was two different no, businesses? No, oh, two okay. different businesses. Yeah. She gotcha. uh, went to a place called Ovarium in Montreal and uh, had a tank there twice a week. And, Did they help you out at all with your... Like, well, they like, helped providing the tank. <laughs> no, I'm saying like, did they say like, ah, oh, because of your unique situation, like we're going to give you extra discounts or anything like that? Or they just saw you as like another number? Uh, my story was my story to me. I didn't go to anyone and ask for, uh, for extra uh, help. Like you didn't, you managed. Gotcha. I did. It was my fight. It was my challenge to overcome. It wasn't anybody else's. I wasn't looking for any handouts for anyone. Uh, gotcha. So I just did, did what I did and it was on me. So. so that uh, this accident was at the end of that 15 year period then of working. Yeah. Not and even then, 15 years, maybe like 12. Yeah. And then after, so you had this accident a year and a half sort of out of commission. That's yeah. a year and a half. Are you calculating after the diagnosis or from the beginning of the, the Cuba, like after the Cuba trip to from, you being... Uh, an entire no from when i got put in the hospital oh shit okay so it's yeah. a long time so it took me 18, 18 months to get back to work 18 months to be physically strong enough for more than a month i was in the hospital i lost 70 pounds i was down to just over 100 pounds jesus yeah i thought the scale in the hospital was originally wrong when i could first start to walk again i would walk yeah. down the hallway and uh of the hospital and it would, the hallway was like a hundred meters long and it would take me about 45 minutes to walk it. And uh, at the far end, they would have a scale uh, that you could step on. And the first time I stepped on it, I thought it was wrong. Yeah. And so I stepped off and I asked the orderly, this uh, big guy to come over. I'm like, can you step on this scale for me? Yeah. Said, I think this is wrong. And he steps on and he's like, no, 255. And I step back on. I'm like, yeah, 107. Yeah, that's, that's, that's and how wrong. much do you weigh now? How much are we on? We uh, 170, just under 170. Under 170? Yeah, about 168 uh, or so. So back then I was a little bit uh, larger. I was also younger yeah. uh, and had more fitness. I didn't lose it all. So yeah, it was before I'd fully gotten hospitalized, I was pretty incapacitated those last several weeks. And then spent a month completely incapacitated in the hospital and then spent several months barely walking. So, and did you have like any sort of help going through this, like family members, uh, friends, uh, whatever? Yeah, once uh, friends, it was. That's when you truly know who your friends 
and becomes crystal clear in moments like that. Who important to you, not what's important to you in terms of the work. Oh, I'll get that dog. Yeah, I need a one sec, actually. One sec. Go, baby. All right. Now, every time, every time she hears something, she'll go for it. Yeah, yeah. That's the point of having a dog. I, mean, I don't exactly. think a puppy's going to kill anybody, but he's just going to give the, the alarm signal. Someone's here. <laughs> no, but um, so you, you figured out sort of, and those friends that were there for you while this all happened, um, I guess you're still in communication with them today. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. So my good friends came to the forefront. They would come visit me regularly daily in the hospital. Um, having a restaurant background, uh, they would bring food. So I, a lot of my friends are old restaurant guys. So they're like, hey, look, I brought you a side of ribs and I got you a little bit of this. And Because the uh, hospital food is notoriously terrible. Yeah. So uh, they'd bring me food, they'd bring me DVDs, they'd come and chill out with me. Um, my, fat, my parents were in Europe at the time. I told them not to worry because there was nothing much they could do for me because I was just yeah. in the hospital. Yeah. Uh, but I would need them after. And so my brother came from Toronto and spent time with me. And then once I got out of the hospital, my mom came and uh, lived with me for a month and uh, took care of me. And we used to like really long, slow walks around the block. <laughs> and she was an angel, really helped me out. The whole family helped me out, just get through that and help me uh, through the cost, some of the costs of tanks and stuff like that. Yeah. Float tanks. All nice. that stuff adds up pretty quick. It does. I was looking at uh, float tanks, like in other countries. It's uh, it's definitely not free to do those things. No, they're not free. Uh, physiotherapy is not free. Um, yeah. You know, all these things aren't free, unfortunately. And so I blew through all of the savings that I've ha I'd had saved for the past the fifteen years before that because yeah. uh, that's what it came down to. It was like, well, you know, I can try and not heal, or I can spend every money I had, all the money I have, to get to a point of health that I can make money again. So it was, it was worth it. hundred percent. I would yeah, yeah. blow all my money all again to stay healthy. Health is wealth. You know, uh, if I'm walking with a cane, but I have a million dollars in the bank, it's worth nothing. But if I have, uh, if I can go surfing in the mornings, but I've only got a crappy old BW van and a really van and not much money, yeah. but I can surf every morning and be healthy. I'll take that any day over a million dollars and walking with a cane. And I was thinking about during that time in the hospital, did you do anything to entertain yourself or was just like sleeping? Like, or did you? It was a lot of sleeping. Um, okay. A lot of recovery. So I was on a uh, antibiotic that was so corrosive, I couldn't put it into uh, an IV drip. I actually had a permanent line fixed through my arm that went directly to my heart. It's called a pick line. And so I was on an hour and a half of antibiotics on a pick line to my heart daily. And uh, I was just so Same. broken that I would just sleep and wake up and eat a little, watch maybe a DVD on my laptop in the hospital bed and uh, just sleep, just sleep. Like any, any form of physical activity would drain me. So if I yeah. would, when I got out of the hospital, if I went for an hour long walk, I would take a three hour sleep after. Like I sure. would just be burnt, 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 burnt. And that's how... I started to recover slowly was uh, in Montreal, Montreal's an island. And so they have the St. Lawrence that flows on either side. And oddly enough, it makes standing waves. So you can go surfing in Montreal on a standing wave. 
and I had already done this in the past. And so what I did is I took my surfboard down to the standing wave once I got a little bit more strength. Yeah. And I would go surf for 20 minutes. And it would kick the shit out of me. And I'd come back and I'd lay in the park. And I'd literally like take a nap <laughs> on a nice laid blanket and yeah. with a little lunch. And I would do that for an hour. And then I'd get up and I'd go surf for another 20 minutes. And I would do that like every day in the mornings. And then I'd- Someone say that's not a bad life. Well, that, that was my recovery. It actually, <laughs> yeah. for six months, I couldn't, after I got out of the hospital, I couldn't stand up straight. Literally, I, gotcha. I was standing like this the whole time because my, my, my spine had decayed so much. I had, yeah. like my, some of my spinal blocks were Swiss cheese. I've, I lost three discs in my back that completely disintegrated from the infection. And so my spine was curved the whole time. And then within a week of going to this standing wave, I could stand up straight. Just by trying to lift my head up off the board for paddling, yeah. it gave me enough strength that within, what I couldn't do in six months, within one week of surfing this crappy little wave in Montreal, I could yeah. finally stand up straight. So. How many of those waves are around Montreal? Because once I was in Montreal and I saw something that was like, I was like, that looks surfable. You know, like right next to like, just walking in a park. And then someone was like, oh, yeah, there's people who surf that wave. And then I was like, oh, okay. Oh, there's probably six waves, depending on what side of the island you're on. The gotcha. most famous one is uh, behind Expo 67 uh, by the racetrack. Uh, yeah, exactly. It was there. Yeah, that's, that's a big wave. Sure. That could be really big. So that, uh, that's a really fun wave. A lot of guys, they tie a rope to a tree and then just sort of like stand on their board and use the current and go out to the wave holding on to the rope and then let go yeah. and then on the wave. You can paddle into that one. Uh, that's more of an experienced surfers kind of wave because once gotcha. you get blown out, you get thrown into the rapids and you got to paddle your way back out. The one I did was in Point Claire, a little less well-known, uh, okay. much easier, much, much more friendly oh, wave. I, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was very friendly wave you know it was me and like a bunch of 10 year old kids <laughs> you know it was uh, it was not the, the hard wave i was uh, yeah. uh same thing once so when i was learning when i was just trying to recover i got on my bike one day and i rode up the mountain in montreal trying to you know and i was thinking i was feeling strong and i could see someone trailing behind me pedaling super hard i'm like i gotta not let this person catch me you know that was my yeah. challenge it was not let this person catch me i was pushing as hard as i can and make it up to the top of the mountain and I look back and this little girl passes me, cling, 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 hi. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> and I was just so weak, you know, that I had no power that a 10 year old girl couldn't beat me on her little bike. <laughs> but, uh, and with that, so it's like you did this whole recovery, then a year and a half later, is that when you came to Dominican Republic or you did other pretty stuff? Much. Ah, okay, pretty much. Okay, that was it. And what do you think of this country? I got healthy. Uh, I went back to work a little bit. And I had, the whole time I was sick, I had thought about uh, doing uncharted kite sessions based on my previous restaurant experience, uh, hotel experience. I worked for a company in Europe called Butterfield and Robinson, which did uh, bicycle tours. They do tours all over the world. Gotcha. They're pretty much the premier bike tour company in the world for biking and walking. And so I worked for them for a while and, France and that was pretty much one of the most amazing jobs I'd ever had. So I wanted to do variation of that with kite surfing. And then uh, I thought about it, thought about it, thought about it for a long time. And then I went uh, in Montreal. It's a uh, custom, it's the yearly migration or bi-yearly every spring and fall, you go down to Cape Hatteras. 
Okay, yeah. You can get down to Cape Hatteras from Montreal on a one day's drive and literally change seasons in that drive. You can go from still snow on the ground in April in, in Montreal to spring conditions in Cape Hatteras. So you go down there early, you start your kite season early. And then uh, I'd gone back to work a couple of months and I went to camp down to Cape Hatteras in April for my migration and uh, stepped on my board for the first time in a year and a half. Kiteboarding. And, Kiteboarding, yeah. Stepped yeah. on my uh, kiteboard, yeah. Stepped on uh, on my uh, surfboard for the first time in a year and a half. First time I touched a kite in a year and a half. Yeah. And uh, within two days, I made a plan to move to the Dominican Republic. <laughs> I, it became the plan that I had in my head. As soon as I felt the board under my feet and the kite in my hands, I was like, "Yeah, this 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 feeling is uh, cements all the thoughts I've had over the last year and a half." And so when did you just real quick when did you get into kiteboarding then got into kiteboarding 12 years ago 11 years 12 years ago yeah. in montreal 2008 Two, yeah 2009 i think sorry yeah 2009 uh, same time as me then. We're almost 21 yeah nice oh, okay so then you went down and then you ever been to dominican republic before that or you just thought why did you think of this country oh uh from as soon as i started kiting i was coming to the dominican republic Direct flight okay. from Montreal. Uh, to Porta Plata. Porta Plata. I'd come down here, stay at Extreme Hotel right on the beach. Uh, and okay. uh, would come down here with uh, my friend Justin, with other friends, and kite all the time. And loved the DR, so I already knew the, the region. I first came to Sassoua in 1985 with my family. Jesus. Yep. And, 1985. Uh, when Sisua was rocky, uh, actually partied with the Beastie Boys and Run DMC on Sisua Beach in 1985. I was 12 years old. I was like, who are all these guys with these How old were they? I don't know. They were in their prime, man. This was mid-80s. Uh, turned out Run DMC and Beastie Boys had the same manager, and he was marrying a Dominican, and so they all came down for uh, the wedding. Wedding, yeah, okay. and so they were all on the beach every day just drinking and i had my first rum filled pineapple with uh mike d from beastie boy <laughs> i got them all to sign the black the back of uh my powell peralta vladimir guerrero skate shirt they all signed it with a sharpie and i still have that shirt i okay still have it yeah it's in my mom's uh, claw or my old claws in my parents house oh wow See, those are the memories. Those are the memories to, to prove that it all happened. I remember, we, to prove the first time I ever went surfing was a, a north swell in Sasua Bay. So when I was here on that vacation, there was a north swell. And so the reef in Sasua Bay had waves. Did you also surf with the Beastie Boys? No, they weren't <laughs> the much athletes. <laughs> but I uh, surfed with the local Dominican kids because uh, I was a swimmer at that point you know so swimming in the ocean for me was a piece of cake and I was like oh surfing let's try this out and so fondness for the Dominican Republic when I flew in in 85 the airport was about the size of my apartment now uh, there was no real airport there's just like a desk with a customs guy and, and it was uh, interesting, uh, interesting and like I say Sasu was on fire the town was amazing was yeah the beach was amazing. but Cabaretti you didn't visit at that time never I did. I, I did one day. Yeah, I came to Cabarete. What it was, was it when you were there? Five buildings. Yeah. Like, that was it. Like, I remember saying that it was this giant windsurfing capital. 
And we came and we checked and there was windsurfers and there's five buildings and I actually got a Cabarete t-shirt with a little windsurfer on it and everything. And I don't have that shirt anymore. But I got, I got, I'd been to Cabarete, but it was, there was no Kite Beach. There was no major hotels. There was, there was, there was nothing. I mean, there were barely fridges in the DR back at that point. Yeah. No, it's really, uh, not what it, it is raw. today. Very raw. Exactly. Very raw. It was, and uh, any of those guys that you saw out in the water, the local, the local guys that you saw surfing or windsurfing, are there any of them people that, you know, yeah. you know, today or no idea? No idea. No idea. Ah, okay. As a, you know, a 12, 13 year old kid, it was just all. No, that'd be like a big coincidence, you know? Like... Oh yeah, I'm sure. Who knows? I could have, uh, I could have been out there with Jan Marco Riveras uh, surfing, yeah. you know, who I'm friends with now. We probably crossed paths when we were kids. We're, yeah. we're close to the same age, you know, there's, uh, there's Dominicans that I know who are pro athletes or even uh, Luciano. I could have been out with him. Sure. Uh, I came surfing to Encuentro uh, with the family. We did all, all the hits, you know, on family. Was Encuentro a thing back then, 1985? Yeah, yeah, there oh, was, okay. it was known for surfing. So it was known for surfing. It didn't have the, kite, the schools that are there now. It definitely yeah. not for the notoriety, but it was the surf spot. And then this was the, the windsurfing spot. And then, uh, you know, did all the tours, did the, uh, uh, mine, what's the rock they have here that encases Larimar. And, uh, no, the brown. I oh, know, Amber, Amber, sorry. Amber, Amber, went to the Amber mines. Yeah. Keep thinking Jurassic Park. <laughs> so. No, that's, uh, that's wild that, uh, I didn't know you came in 1985. That's really a long time ago before yeah. my time. Oh, and you'd land, and it was before planes had the same insulation in the windows. So when you landed on the plane, all the windows on the inside fogged up and became misty. And the airport was just jungle around it. So when you landed, you just looked like you were landing in a jungle and everything misted up. And I was just like, where the fuck are we? <laughs> it was quite the, pardon the language. Uh, and it was interesting. It was eye-opening. And then, so you, so you came back after all your your injury your recovery you came back to the, you went north carolina hatteras and then you or south is it south carolina no north carolina north carolina north, north carolina, carolina hatteras, hatteras. Yeah. cape hatteras and then dominican republic and then what 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 happened there and then i've been here ever since so went to cape hatteras went back to montreal uh put everything i owned into storage and moved here two weeks after that cape hatteras trip and of, uh, How many years ago was that? Seven years ago. And when did Uncharted start? Seven years ago. So oh, I okay. started that same summer. Everything I moved to Cape Hatteras, moved down here, um, got a lay of the land. Used to work for pretty much every kite school on the beach here. Whether yeah. it was a Dare to Fly, Kite Club, uh, LEK, coached for all of them just to see. Uh, what it was like, did my IKO at the Kite Club. Uh, so I got my certification for coaching, but I don't use IKO now because I'm yeah. uncharted beyond that. But, uh, and just sort of cut my teeth on what it was like to coach every type of rider and get the experience of that for kiteboarding. I wanted to get in, you know, a couple hundred hours of coaching uh, Monsieur, Madame, Tout le Monde, you know, everyone uh, and their son. Yeah. And then improve my own skills to the point where I could coach people beyond my skills and then talk to all the pros in the world. And they all said, yeah, let's have a party. So though, so this wasn't your first solo business, 
like your first business, not solo business, but your first business that you started? No, you started no. other businesses before, exactly. Yeah, I used okay. to have a woodworking company in Montreal. Yeah. Uh, when I worked for construction uh, and restaurants, I've opened businesses for other people. Uh, I've had up to 50 employees working underneath me. So I've had experience as a management position. So this was, uh, usually I do work for other people. Uh, yeah. I enjoy the team aspect. Sometimes I find it for myself, it's more motivating to have the pressure of other people counting on you. Yeah, um, for sure. So that's my motivator. When it's just me in front of the computer, sometimes I just go surfing instead. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I enjoyed it all. But uh, seven years now on Charter Kite Sessions. Kevin Legger was the first. Yeah, Kevin Legger was the first. I remember that back in the – I think I, I don't know if I was there for that one. I think I was that I helped on a downwinder. Maybe, I'm not sure. Probably. probably. You might have been there from one of the first ones, if not the second yeah. one. If not, exactly. If not the second one. Um so then when you start off this business, did you sort of have like a map out of like how you're going to start it and how you're going to go about it? And what were some of the things that you thought were going to be easy and some of the things that you thought were going to be uh, hard and did that sort of play out how you thought in your head? Like, did it, did what you originally think of happening happen? Uh, not in as direct of a line. Uh, now, seven years in, I have the demand and I can fill my camps. Uh, my expectation when I started was there would be more demand to ride with pro riders. Yeah. Uh, I thought that would be uh, an easier sell. I thought if a pro just said, hey, come ride with me, everyone would be like, okay, sure. Yeah. Uh, but uh, getting the people to jump on a plane, put the money down is definitely uh, more challenging. Uh, but that also comes with the reputation. You have to develop the reputation for the people to spend the money. Yeah. Um, that was, uh, and the more hard part uh, is uh, navigating the internet and, uh, and search rankings and SEO and learning the back end of how to, uh, I'm used to a very hands-on business, whether hotels and restaurants, whether retail. Physical stuff. In, physical, the guy walks in the door. If I can talk to you for a couple of minutes, then we can make the sale, then we can create some sort of uh, relationship and go from there. Whereas when you're working on the internet and you're trying to sell a product online, uh, sometimes it feels like you're pissing in the wind. You just, you don't yeah. know. And then it, there's so, it, there's such a lag in response. If you're doing a marketing campaign or if you're doing some sort of campaign in order to get it, the, yeah, you can get likes and you can get quick reactions, but those don't, you won't see Translate. the turnaround into yeah. sales for, month or two so it'll take you a month two three months to do a campaign to be like okay this was a good campaign the roi the return investment was really good on this we should continue or you could have spent a couple hundred dollars on a campaign or a thousand dollars on a campaign for a couple months and been like i was a waste of time you know we're spent money on the magazines you know to put an ad in the magazine magazines yeah. aren't cheap is it worth it to spend a thousand dollars on a magazine or is it worth it to spend a thousand dollars in just organic marketing and do your yeah. own marketing that way and so those those have been uh, the challenges so if you were to like knowing what you know now what would you maybe have done differently or would you have done anything differently uh know what your weaknesses are i don't like i'm not a social media kind of guy it's very hard for me yeah. to uh get up every day and, and 
hey, look at the beach day, put it in my story, put it in my feed and make a story every day. Uh, I can get a photo of once every couple of days. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I'm uh, too private a person uh, to, to be that uh, attention seeking. So yeah, if, 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 if your business is based on online marketing, yeah. you got to get a, a face, at least an online face, you know? Uh, mm -hmm. definitely when you come to join me for coaching and camps, you see my face and I'm, I'm the person you're dealing with. Yeah. But in order to develop a strategy or to just have the passion to go online and, and do that day after day is, uh, I'd much sooner talk to a person. So like, for example, this conversation, you were surprised that I didn't have zoom and we had to install zoom so I could talk to yeah, you yeah. because I pick up the phone. I am an old school kind of guy, you know, I'll send an email yeah. and my email will say, Hey, you're free at one o'clock. I want to talk. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, so, and that's, that's why I do my kite camps is because, uh, it's relationships. You can sit there and talk to someone. I can easily, you know, you can get a critique of people who come to say, Oh, you know, your kite camp's expensive. I can go get coaching from X pro for a hundred dollars an hour. And if I do your kite camp, I'm paying too much because I'm like, yeah, well, if you go with that pro for one hour, you're going to get your one hour and he's going to be done with you. And he probably will never remember your name after that one hour. Yeah. But if you come and you spend a week with Kevin, with Yuri, with any of these great riders, they know you after that. You're friends with them. You actually get to hear the stories and the insights. And, you know, Kevin tells you about how he was almost thrown in jail because they thought he was smuggling cocaine out of Mexico, but it was just kite gear, you know? And by the end of it, he's showing the, the guards kite videos and they think he's the coolest guy in the world, you know? So that's the difference in the relationship building and the reason for the camps is because you get, you know, you get to hear funny stories because the pro yeah. riders themselves have very unique lives. They get put in all kinds of interesting situations because they're constantly on planes and going to countries that we all wish we could go to. Yeah. And in travels, they don't necessarily have the right paperwork or they don't have the right uh, things set up in advance. So they get a lot of shenanigans. Questions and, and yeah, yeah, situations. Yeah, yeah. So there are stories they have out of that you know, is, uh, that's what life is about. It's about uh, those relationships. So it's like with, with the, with you studying psychology, you sort of dealing in like a coaching world, which is in a way psychology because you're helping people like overcome, uh, blocks maybe in themselves, like to sort of develop themselves. So what do you see are sometimes like the most common blocks, uh, when you're coaching people? or that you've been coaching people in forever and like, how do you sort of help them overcome it? And do those blocks that they have in that sport sort of translate to other parts of their lives? You think? hundred percent, hundred percent, hundred percent. I've had many clients who after coaching, taking them for a week of coaching or doing a trip with me, they've gone back to work and seen their work differently. Uh, my favorite quote from a client of mine, sort of paraphrasing, he said, after today, I went from the thinking of what will go wrong or what can go wrong, can go wrong to what will go right. Yeah. And so that was his, every time he'd go out in the water, he's like, oh, this is going to go wrong. That's going to go wrong. And at the end of, I'd spend a week with him and or a bunch of them in Brazil. And at the end of the week, he was like, no, I'm not thinking about what's going to go wrong. I'm thinking about what's going to go right. And so what he did, and it ended up translating into his life was, he was looking, so for example, we were trying to teach him how to do an up, a duck tack on a foil board. Yep. And so 
it's a complicated move because you spin under your kite, you spin under your, your board, spin underneath you, you transition your feet. And he was seeing the entire tack as one giant move. You know, he, he couldn't break it down into different moves. And so his problem was he was moving his feet before he even turned his body. And so what we did is we just stepped back and said, okay, let's just break this down one by one, one step by one. You're not finishing your 360. So if your, bo your body doesn't finish 360, your board's not going to come. So let's sure. start cutting up wind and don't even try to finish the board and finish the tack. Just try to spin your body around. Just try to come around and get back on your board. Even if your board's facing the wrong way, we're not working on the board yet. Just worry about getting your body around and facing the right direction. And once he figured that out, that took him a few times because he would still panic. He'd still be thinking, it's like, okay, I'm like, okay, now we got that. Now let's push on the board and just broke it down into steps and it made life a lot easier. And so mental blocks are people's fears. They're a lot of people carry their life into their sports, you know? Um, so they think if I can't do this in work, they're not going to be able to do this here. And so mm -hmm. it depends on the coach. What's helped me with psychology is learning to read that person. Some people are very visual. Some people are very uh, verbal. You know, you can tell someone something verbally and, and you can just see like deer in Nothing. the headlights. Yeah. Nothing. And then you're like, okay, watch my hands. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So you have to, that's what coaching is, is learning how to actually to explain something and seeing whether that it's registered with that person. Yeah. And you could try it one way and it doesn't register. You show them another way. And finally, when they can tell you back what you've told them and they can explain it, they're like, okay, now you understand. So mental blocks or fears, mental blocks or previous coaches. I have a new client now that I'm coaching who went as far as she could with her coach and yeah. because of the block between them and their communication, she was going to stop kiting. You know, she was still in the beginner stages yeah. and she couldn't get past these mental blocks. Sure. And so when we got on the beach, I just let her talk. Well, what did you feel about that? What did you feel about this? And how was the coaching? Well, he, you know, he always said this. I'm like, okay. And then as we would do stuff, I'd be like, do this. And she's like, well, the other guy told me to do that. And I'm like, well, are you holding on to the other guy's coaching or are you following my coaching now? Like, yeah. And then once she was able to release the negative things, because the things that she would do, she would be very negative on her. She was turning those to positives with me and then we're able to go in a more positive direction. So mental blocks are everyone's biggest challenge with anything. I think whether everything, whether you can think if it's recovery from, from healing, from injuries, whether it's, you think you can go to university or whether you think you can do a back roll. It all comes yeah. down to your mental block. And what do you think is the biggest block people have with working with a coach? Like is everyone a coach they're for better everyone. than they are. Okay. Everyone thinks that they're better than they are. I don't need a coach. I'm a pro, you know, yeah. uh, when or I, I'm uh, super wealthy already and successful and whatever, like, yeah. Yeah, exactly. People, especially if they, if they are successful in other parts of life, they don't think that they need a coach. But my experience is the people who are the most successful in life actually have coaches in everything they do. So the most successful businessmen I know have always had mentors, have always had a group that they can talk to that can coach them, whether it's a, uh, uh, what are those called? A, a mind? You need uh sorry about interrupting. It's like, uh, cause I was just trying to, I was checking if the word is right. The Shoshin mindset. 
which is like the beginner beginner mindset in everything you do yeah. you know so not being afraid to sort of like see things in a new light or see th- or understand that you're like not you might think you are somewhere but maybe realizing that you're maybe not there and then sort of like what you're saying with like that's why i was interesting that you're saying that to break big goals into small goals like bite size so you could sort of build your way up and what you're saying yeah like people think they're better than what they are so it sort of like blocks them from potential progress in a way yeah and people people set themselves up on these giant goals but they don't they have problems setting their small goals in between you know they they just yeah. see the end and they don't see how they can get there so that becomes very daunting and then some people can get through that dauntingness and some people can a lot of people just get like wow it's just too far but if yeah. you just start breaking down slowly and then those little increment improvements give you such a mental boost as well, because you're like, every time you come off the water or out of the job, you've, you've improved slightly. Yeah. And with that improvement, uh, you get more drive to continue. You know, mm-hmm. if you, if you only see that end goal and you have any, like my end goal is to do a back roll, but you just don't have your pop and you're not concentrating on your pop. You're just thinking about the back roll and you don't get there. You're going to quit. But if you all of a sudden your pops are, nice and you have this nice float all of a sudden the back roll seems so much more attainable because now you have so much more control and just your your pop and your original jump so anything just a lot of people most people set their big goals too big and their small goals too small they don't uh, and then knowing then knowing all of this and you seeing it in other people how do you push yourself how do you overcome your blocks and how how does that work out or do you think you don't have any blocks or you're like, yeah, I have oh, blocks. We're all, we all have blocks. Anybody who doesn't have blocks, uh, doesn't have uh, intricacies in their personality is lying to themselves. Yeah. Um, the same way. I just try and do the same thing myself. Uh, see where what is, you, what is one block you, you have right now that you don't mind sharing and how are you trying to work on it? For example, marketing I'm terrible at marketing and, and social media yeah. and uh and so i just try and think about it more and what i can do to make it better you know and, and try and uh and i do a terrible job at it because it's also something you got to enjoy what your block is you know um i don't know yeah just uh what are you so what are you trying to do <laughs> i don't know i just Trying to get more of it done. Trying and do to you think more, marketing, you said marketing and something else? You, what did you say? You said just social media. Just social media marketing. Creating more so, noise. So similar to what you're doing is having the ambition to, to get. It's one hello? of those things. The more I want to create content. That, oh, still there? It, it cut out for a second. Sorry. I don't know if the video got it, but just for myself, I didn't hear. You, you started talking and it cut out right uh, now. To create content. Yeah, to create content similar to what you're doing. That's yeah. my block is 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 to get over that block. Uh, I'm just putting yourself of, out there. Putting myself out there, um, making noise. I'm not a noise maker in general, <laughs> so it's one of those things. No, but also there's that there's that double edge. The reason why I was asking about the marketing and the social media is that what I find on marketing and social media sort of like what you mentioned before. I forgot exactly. I forgot exactly what you, you, you referenced it, but you're saying like people, 
people are trying, like, let's say you're going to spend X amount of money on something. You want to get a return, right? A return on investment on that. And what I find is that a lot of people just make noise and they might get the like, they might get the comment, they might get the share, but to what end, you know, like, where does that even lead to? And that's the thing is like, sometimes people are just making noise and they might be good at making noise and they might be good at getting likes and shares but it doesn't really convert into anything. They don't really bring some sort of value, offer some sort of product that actually brings value or offer some sort of service that actually brings value. And what I do find with your camps, I haven't attended one uh, in the full length, but just being able to attend, let's say one afternoon at La Boca plus a dinner, you could already tell like that's an experience that has value. You know, that's gonna be memorable, that's, gonna, that's fun, that's insightful. Mm -hmm. And instead of just like saying, Hey guys, buy this, uh, wish.com Apple iPhone cover. hundred percent. And, and that is, that is my goal is just to create experience. Uh, yeah. before I got sick and spent the time in the hospital, I had the, all the bells and whistles of modern man. You know, I had uh, BMW, had a nice condo, had all the things you want. Yeah. And, uh, I realized having looked back at my experience in Butterfield and Robinson, how amazing that was because of those dinner conversations with people and especially, uh, with a nice kite camp, a quality kite camp, you're going to, uh, uh, attract a clientele who've had interesting lives, yeah. uh, who have stories to tell. And especially when you have a quality coach like a world champion like Kevin or Muna or anyone like that, uh, you're going to attract people from around the world, uh, yeah. from South Africa, from Brazil, from Europe. And the stories are incredible. The experiences that are incredible. You know, uh, the people you meet from the chairman of Coca-Cola to the chairman of the Singer Sewing Machines to the vice president of the Wall Street Journal you know, they all have such varying backgrounds, uh, you know, to a, a, a guy who's a millionaire from, from growing strawberries, you know, yeah. you have guys who are, do all kinds of interesting things. So what links them together? Uh, you think like what, so the these passion individuals, for the ocean, the passion for outdoors. No, but like, that's passion one part of it, but it's like, what past that, what all these sort of unique individuals that you say have all these like they're full of stories they're full of experiences and they might be from varying backgrounds you know like you sort of mentioned like higher up like ceo or uh founders or this and that what sort of links because those types of people i find you could also find them in i, I always find this wrong because it always makes it sound wrong you know but like uh people that don't have all those uh, resources like uh ceo of a bank might have right financial resources yeah. and all this but sometimes there's people that you meet that are in those positions, but they're very like what people say down to earth or very open individuals. What sort of, what links these people? What, what makes these people have these mindsets of like, they don't really care where they're from. Like they understand where they're from or they might've done something epic and legendary. And in their eyes, they might not think it's epic or legendary. They're sort of like, this is what I had to do. Like what you're saying with Kevin, that he's in a, He's showing the cops like, hey, guys, I'm actually a kiteboarder and this is what I do. You know, he's just like for for anyone outside, that might be a crazy story. But for Kevin, he's like, I just had to do that in the moment to, yeah. to get past this one stage, you know. So what sort of links these uh, 
is it a mindset? Is it experiences? Like what leads someone to being open and being like that other adventure? They're not just like, they're not like an NPC in a game, you know, they're an actual player in the game. What turns people to being an actual player? Curiosity. People who, who, who come to these are curious and are open to new experiences. So just by the fact that you're coming for coaching and you're coming to get someone better than you teaching you something means you're already open, open to new experiences. You're already open to knowing that you don't know everything and someone else knows more than you. Yeah. And so that links them together is that they all have some sort of humbleness in, in that respect that they don't think they're the best. I mean, we still definitely... You get clients like that, but in general, no. Yeah. Uh, and Mother Nature, I think, is a great humbler yeah. um, in sport. So, and that's why I love sport, and I've always loved sport. Uh, most of life, or most people, unfortunately, are bullshitters. You know, sure. I'm the I'm the greatest. This I make X amount of money. Uh, yeah. I'm Fortune 500 company, but you can't really bullshit in sport. You can either do the sport or you can't. So sure. you can say to me, I'm the greatest squash player. You know, I played squash my whole life, this and that. I'm like, oh, great. Let's go play a game of squash. Yeah. As soon as you swing that racket, I can know whether you can play squash or not. You don't need to hit the ball literally one time. All right, you can play squash. <laughs> you know, same thing with a kite, same thing with anything else. Uh, and it puts no matter how big your job is or what your title is, if you go out on an overhead day with a surfboard, whether you're the CEO or you're just a surf bum, mother nature is going to beat the crap out of you the same. Mm-hmm. It's not going to care either way. You're just, you're going to be as humbled as the next person. Uh, we just had two weeks of the most fantastic waves here in the Dominican Republic with hurricane Teddy and all these other uh, nor'easters that came down. And uh, these, this week I'm a humbled man. There were days when I would go out and I literally could not make it through the out one side. One day I couldn't make it to the outside because the waves were so big. I just got pummeled for an hour on the inside, came in. And just as coincidence, this guy walks the beach every day, walked by. He's like, Hey, how you doing? And I just told him, oh, humbled. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm nothing today. Mother nature put me in my place. And so that maybe is the bonder between the people who come on the trips, because no matter how good you are, when you took your first kite lessons, there was a point in your kite lesson that you ate it for sure. Whether you got too much speed and you Mm. or caught an edge or you just ejected because you had too much power in your beginner lessons, everybody had water fly up their nose at 400 miles an hour and walked off the water and was like, okay, I'm done for today. (laughs) You know? Mm -hmm. So maybe that's the common binder. Uh, Maybe it's the personal touch. I talk to every client that comes on every one of my trips. I don't have a book here button. I don't, uh, you know, you can't just go onto my website and go click here, pay. All right, I'm going to go see Kevin and then just show up six months later and be on the trip. Uh, You have to send me an email. We have to start talking. Uh, And if you're a good fit, you're a good fit. If you're not, if it's not your level, if it's not what you're looking for, I'll be honest with you. You know, if you're looking for something that is, not what our charter could offer then we can't or if you're not the level i'll uh encourage you to get to a higher level or come for private coaching so we can get you to the level that you want it to be to learn from kevin or or someone else uh but the people come on my trips are 
cool people. People who go on trips like this in general are, are generally cool people. I learned that working for Butterfield and Robinson. You know, people choose their vacations. People who want to go on cruises, go on cruises. People who want to go on all-inclusives are all-inclusives kind of people. People who want to come on an adventure are coming on an adventure for a reason. They, they, they want something more in life. And uh, they're not necessarily cash-driven as much as they are experience-driven. No, it's uh, it's something that I always like, sort of see and realize, like, and it's sort of what you said that, like, Mother Nature is a great equalizer, and yeah, you see it for sure in like in surfing or something like that because you're really vulnerable to the elements when you put yourself out there. Uh, I don't know, like, what do you see the differences between land, snow? I don't think you do any air sports, like. You, you haven't done skydiving or any of these or paragliding? Well, I've done skydiving. Um, oh, you did? Oh, okay. Yeah. But like not practice, I'm saying like further, yeah, like maybe yeah. the tandem jumps and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah I did my and, pass one summer. Did a lot. And then water <laughs> <laughs> and then water sports. What do you think is the big difference? Are all these sort of sports equal in their own way or are they actually all different? And then if they are different, cool sort of like how? You they all get you out in nature. And so uh, I think all the people who do outdoor sports are a fan of nature. But what if it's indoor something. sports? Like what if it's basketball, soccer? Athleticism. Athleticism. Uh, just love of sport, like uh, the, the purity of it. Uh, that's, I played basketball. I played uh, high school basketball, played every sport. When I was a kid, I went swim practice in the morning and came to school, basketball practice at lunch, football practice after school, straight swim practice after football practice. Yeah, uh, it's people who love sport. People, are, people who love athleticism. You know, you either have athletes or you people who don't like doing sports. Some people are like, "Oh my god, I hate throwing a ball," and other people, it's the greatest thing in the world is to go outside and throw a ball. Have you ever seen anyone like get into? Do you think you're born with athleticism, or you develop that over time? Like, how does that happen? And is there is it ever too late? No, I think everyone is a different level of athlete, for sure. Uh, when I was a professional athlete, that's one thing I realized very quickly. Uh, the only reason I would, was able to stay an athlete is because I knew that I wasn't the athlete that other people were. Uh, so I would have to find a way to be better. So when I played high level water polo, I'm definitely not the biggest guy in the pool. I'm not the strongest guy in the pool. Um, you guys are much bigger than me, but what I did was my technique and how I would grab your arm, how I would try and wrestle the ball away from you. I incorporated jujitsu moves into water polo. And so that became my way of making, uh, equalizing a guy who was 6'6", 220. You know, okay, how I'm not, if I just try arm wrestling with him, it's not going to work. Yeah. If I turn his wrist, it might work better. So every person is an athlete how far you can go is all up to you and how much you want to push your level. Um, yeah, you can do anything you want. Some people definitely aren't athletes, just like uh, some people aren't pianists and some but people aren't they, But you could develop that in a way if you wanted you to. You can develop to a point. Like, you know, some, everyone can pick up a pencil and draw, but only X amount of people will be very good at drawing, right? Or playing piano. Everyone can do everything. You know, I my wife is beautiful playing piano and she teaches me to play piano sometimes and I'm terrible and I'll never be as good as her, uh, but I'll be good at within my level and whatever I'm happy with. Right. 
So it depends on how, how much you want to push it, how much it means to you for your sport. If you're a kiter, are you happy going out just on the weekends uh, by your local lake or ocean and mowing the lawn? Or do you want to improve yourself? Do you want to get to the next trick? And at what point do you say, okay, I've gotten to unhook tricks and that's as far as I want to go. And then that becomes a, okay, well now the more complicated the trick, the more chances of an injury. Right. So basic trick. Should you ever stop though? Should you ever like, is it a, you know how like you're saying that like, okay, there's a higher chance of injury, let's say, but is there ever a point where you're like, ah, like, is that a, a, a wise or unwise decision to be like, ah, I don't need to get better. You know, is that sort of like a limiting, is that sort of a, a block there, would you say? That's a personal choice. People can, can want to get better. It depends what you want out of it. You know, some people go yeah. kiting just because they just want to burn off the week. You know, they don't want to go out and they don't want to think about learning a new trick and putting that effort in and yeah. the injury and the wipeouts. And the, because when you learn, you get knocked down, you get knocked down a few pegs. Sure. And so a lot of people don't want that when they go kiting or when they go do their sport. What they want to do is they want to go enjoy their sport. They want to go out, enjoy the sun, go for a ride, come back in, have a margarita, call it a day. So I wouldn't say that's a block as so much as what you're doing your sport to get out of it. You know, how, how, what do you want to get out of it? Myself, I like pushing just because I like. What are you getting, trying to get out of it? Freedom. But that's what it is for me is freedom. It's, it's where... If I can start, whether it's doing any sport, if you ever catch me whistling while I'm working, it's because I'm actually in the moment. Gotcha. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking like, you can hear me on GoPros humming all the time. If you have like a, the mouth put GoPro with volume, <laughs> you can, and am I in waves? You can hear me. <laughs> because in my head, I start a soundtrack. And once I'm in the soundtrack, I'm riding and I'm having fun. Gotcha. And so that's why I kite. Uh, why I do my business is to share that experience with other people um, is for the people who do want to get better and they go have a coaching lesson with me. Yeah. My reward, my biggest reward for any of this is the look on people's face when they're done their two hours with me, when they come to the beach and we're sitting there having a cerveza at Encuentro after our downwinder and they just have this look like almost like they're in love. Do you know, they have just this, this it might be, thing. They might be, and they're in love with you because that's what they just had. They were just, they were just like, oh my God, that toe side turn was, wow, you know? And, and that look for me is, is the satisfaction, is the paycheck uh, because that's what people will remember. You know, in 50 years from now, you're not gonna remember the car you have this year, or you might, but you won't have it in the same fondness as oh, that time I spent a week with uh, Me Too in Brazil. Yeah. And, we went down the coast and after we got to the hotel, we went out in the sandbar and we dug out some clams and then we pan fried some clams and butter and, you know, and watched the full moon. And those are the stories, you know? So you would say, cause I saw this uh, and I remember we talked about it a little bit is like traveling you think is like uh, an essential maybe part of life or no? hundred percent, hundred percent. What if you don't have the means to travel? Like how can you get around that then? And traveling nationally be because some people might not be able to do international travel, but they can maybe do national travel. You think you 100%. could, yeah, you can find the same. Canada and the U S are so massively big, at least, you know, where I come from that yeah. East coast to West coast are very different people. You know, like mm -hmm. if you compare the size of the United States and the size of Europe and how much it changes from 
France to the Ukraine and the change in people, it's the same, going to be the same in the United States from California to Mississippi. Uh, it's going to be a very different person. Now, they're all going to be called Americans, but they're going to have a very different view on life, just like Ukrainians and French or Italians yeah. and Russians. So if you're stuck in a, in a giant landlocked country like Canada, the U.S., uh, Brazil, very different. I go south of Brazil, north of Brazil, very different Brazilians, different colored skin, different color language, even north coast to south coast of the Dominican Republic. Yeah, I go to the south coast, it's very different than the north coast. So if you can just travel locally, travel locally. Um, if you can travel internationally, do it on the cheap, you know, stay. I, most of my life was traveling in with a backpack, sleeping in a dorm room, yeah. uh and and meeting all kinds of people and, and living off twelve dollars a day you know and uh, eating spam and rice and whatever Save i still haven't eaten spam i think in my life <laughs> spam <laughs> and brown sugar in a, in a cast iron pan delicious jesus uh, what is spam anyways what is that actually ah, it's just processed meat it's ah, so processed it's meat? meat packed into yeah so you're putting meat and sugar in a pan yeah, it's a, it's pan, spam is essentially bacon, like processed bacon stuffed into a can that you can take anywhere. You peel off the top, you pop it up, you can slice it into pieces. And then just from my camp days when I was a kid at camp, we used to sprinkle brown sugar on it and then you put it in a cast iron pan and it sears it and gives it this like caramelized, so it's like caramelized bacon. So if you I, have bacon, I'm almost bacon debating spam. if I should try that one day. Oh, like I don't eat meat. I don't eat. I, I don't generally, you know. But I'm debating because that's everyone always talks about spam. A can of spam, can of spam. Yeah. Like. So <laughs> if you can travel, traveling is the greatest teacher there is. You'll realize that better than YouTube. But, oh yeah, YouTube is not <laughs> an experience. YouTube is an experience yeah. based on someone else's experience and their view and their agenda. Yeah. Only by traveling and walking. Fly somewhere, get out, get a little backpack full of water and uh, go for a walk. Every yeah. time I travel, I land in Bangkok. I walk through Bangkok for five days straight. Literally all day, every day. And what did you do? Last year, like, what did you, what did that, everything. what did that lead to? Like, did you talk to locals? Did you? Uh, yeah, locals, locals love finding tourists is my experience. If you just walk along, Soon enough, some locals just going to start randomly walking beside you and just to see if they can get your interest. Yeah. Half the time, they're trying to sell you something. Yeah. The other half of the time, they are themselves just trying to pass the day. Uh, gotcha. Many times I've been walking and some younger kid has come up to me and started talking to me because they're interested in where you're from because they themselves have not traveled not even nationally, you know, they've never been on a plane, some of the people you meet. And so they're really interested to see who you are, to, to practice their English. Hey, can I talk to you? I want to practice my English. And uh, they ask you questions and then they ask you, well, have you been to this uh, church over here? Oh, no, no, I'll come with me, I'll take you, I'll take you, I'll take you. And so the locals are really ecstatic to show you around, you know? And I've spent days, and I'm still friends with people from India, from Thailand, that I met that were locals. And especially with Facebook, you become friends with them, you can take, keep track of them. Yeah. And uh, they'll show you the true country. You know, I remember once I was walking in a town in northern India, and I, if all the tourists are going that way, I walk the opposite way. 
and I was exactly that. I walked and walked and walked and I got to this one square and I was sort of walking and this guy comes up to me. He's like, uh, are you lost? And I'm like, no. And he's like, oh, are you looking for the, the square, you know, with the, all the tourists? And I, he's like, it's over there. I'm like, no, I'm not looking for that. I'm looking for you. I'm looking for India. I want to see what's yeah. Oh, come, 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 come. Went to his house, had tea, helped him. He had a printing press. So we went into his printing press and I helped him bind books on this hand-turned printing press. Spent a day doing that. Another day, I uh, crossed these woodworking guys who were just working out of a garage and I just stopped to watch them. They're come, come, come. And uh, ended up building a bed with them because I was a carpenter. So yeah, I showed sure. them the techniques that I had and ended up going to their house for dinner. And you'll see that... As the Italians say, una faccia, una race. One face, one race. You know, we're all humans. Whether yeah. it's a different color, whether it's a different region. I think the, the biggest downfall of human civilization is borders. Yeah. If the world had no borders and people could just walk wherever they wanted to go, people would settle where they wanted to be. You know, you can say that, oh, if the world had no borders, everyone would go to the beach or everyone would go to this. No, they wouldn't. Not really. Yeah, people no. hate the beach. A lot of people would prefer the mountains. I actually don't yeah. like sand that much. <laughs> <laughs> so if borders are the biggest downfall to humanity because it gives people the impression that something is theirs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I own this. Brazil owns this or America owns this. Yeah. And it's, no, humans own this. We all yeah, own this. and it's yeah. like for Americans, how old is America? Like 200 something years old, right? Or not even. Yeah, exactly. So it's like you just had it for 10%, if that, 10% of from what we know, you know, of like 2,000. Yeah. And before that, uh, infinite, almost billions. Yeah, infinite. Exactly, exactly. So it's so it's, but that's, a, that's an interesting thing, though, is like how that, uh, how people have that. Like, that's also a thing that I find that people that are more open usually don't have that, like, uh, I know it's good to be like, have some sort of like, I think it's good to understand that you're influenced by that, you know, like that nationalism and pride and all these things sort of can block you in a way, you know, like it closes you up to new things because you're like, it's like a way to revert to a safe ground for yourself. But, preconceived uh, views, preconceived notions of what people are and who they are and what they think. Yeah. And that's the base of essentially racism is that you think you already understand a human when you don't really, you haven't walked a mile in their shoes. You know, so. so then isn't everyone in a way racist in a way unfortunately everyone has their predispositions to yeah because always people always think that racism is like just one or the other you know like black versus white or something but there's racism yeah. in everything there's racism in everything there's racism yeah. in everything and it's and it's up to humans to be open and realize the way people are and it, it comes down to also where you're where you grew up you know where sure. what was your accommodation you know is your society a machismo society or is your society a docile society right you know like uh, is your society a respectful society i a friend of mine uh, in is a for, is a former f1 uh, test driver oh, okay and he was telling me a story of when he was out partying one night in japan and uh, he was he was like well you know i can't uh, get too much, you know, girls and partying this and that. And yeah. people who's with in Japan are like, no one takes pictures here. No one, don't worry. Nothing you, you do here 
will will go out because until it goes out <laughs> no but it doesn't go out because it's yeah. it's, it's a different society so it's a different where you come from the respect that everyone gives each other you know gotcha. uh, North so it's America, a perfect place for people that are trying to escape <laughs> to just be private you know yeah, yeah. to just be private to, to everyone mind their own business and then you have other cultures where your business is everybody's business and then he was telling me the story he's like man if i went out on a night like this with girls in my arm and we went to a restaurant and we were in london it would be on all the tabloids yeah but here it's not so it's how you grew up so the japanese mentality is different than the brazilian mentality is different than uh, all kinds of mentality. i wonder what's on the newspapers then in japan what do they talk about i don't know don't read japanese <laughs> probably talk about today we're gonna cook this new meal together <laughs> who knows maybe it's about economy maybe it's about more substantial issues i couldn't say but yeah. it all the Depends where you grow. It depends on what you have seen. You know, if you are a black kid growing up in Atlanta, your views on the police are going to be very different than a white kid growing up in Toronto, <laughs> you know? And, uh, oh, so what no. helped open you up? It was just like your whole, I think it was like your sports background and being able to be in different events with different people mingling. Uh, uh parents, my parents, parents so. When I came, we came to Sasua in 1985. I didn't stay at an all-inclusive in Sasua. We stayed at a little hacienda. Yeah. And uh, at 12 years old, I was walking to the beach by myself with my brother. And so my parents could have some alone time. Yeah. So when I was, by the time I was 10 years old, I was, because I'm Greek, Greek background. Yeah. I would fly to Greece by myself every year by the time I was 10. My parents would put me in the airport in Canada and I would pop out the other side. My, parent, my grandparents would pick me up in Athens. And so I would walk through Amsterdam airport by myself yeah. as a kid. And so it was just uh, brought on me to not. It's a big airport. Yeah. yeah For people that don't know. Me. Yeah. yeah. 10 years old. <laughs> uh, uh, but I uh, was always an adventurer. That was my biggest problem actually is my parents would be like, where the fuck is Andreas? You know, <laughs> <laughs> I would just go for walks and go check stuff out. So, and that comes and how you walk and present yourself in every country also opens doors for you. You know, uh, mm -hmm. I once was walking in India and was walking with this girl and we walked in these streets. She's like, I would never walk here by myself. You know, I would never come through here. And we went into all these places that she would never go because of just how I was. I was just open, smiling. Most yeah. countries, people will look at you first, just look at you with no, no, smile or no frown or anything just look at you and so it's up to you to yeah. respond i always look at someone and hey how you doing you know like big smile right away and as soon as you flash a smile and don't give an aggressive the door is open like crazy and especially if you can say hola or buen dia or whatever language that they're in if you can you know whatever you can say in that you learn the hello in that language open and, doors uh, open doors because especially in more adventurous, you know, if you're going to Italy, they're not going to be so talkative with you, but if you're going to non-developed countries, yeah. they're really interested in talking to you because they mm -hmm. don't get a chance to see you. They see MTV, you know, so they see you, they want to see if what they see on TMZ or in the movies is actually what you're like. Yeah. So when I was in Vietnam last year, many times people would be like, can, can I just talk with you, sit and talk with you? You know? And then even just sitting and talking to them, you get to see the personality and what their body's like. So Vietnamese, 
press right up against you. They talk to you like shoulder to shoulder. You never met the person. They're sitting with you on the bench, right up to you talking. And you're like, hey, whoa, wait, wait. <laughs> a little bit of space. And so North America yeah. will be bigger space. And so it teaches you to be like, to adapt, roll, adapt and roll with the custom. Same in India. They, they, they come right up to your face. And then how to treat people, you know, and in India, China, these places, there's no such thing as a line for bus tickets. The counter opens and 400 people mob on it. They don't queue up one Do behind Do people try them. to jump over each other or? 100%. Oh, yeah? Oh, okay. Yeah, so as soon as the next guy's out, it's a boom, next guy's in. Yeah. And so, but at the same time, they're incredibly respectful. So if you were the next guy and everyone knows you're the next guy and the guy goes, they're going to try and cut you off. But as soon as you say, hey, I was next. Oh, sorry. Pardon. Yeah, they, they just, they're just testing their luck. They, they test it because yeah, there's they're a testing you, it, testing right? their luck, testing everything. Yeah, yeah. Soon as, soon as you go, hey, listen, I, I was next. Oh, okay, sorry, sorry. So, oh, I didn't see you there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, I didn't see you there with the 75 other million people there. Yeah. Uh, so it's one of those things. You learn the culture, walk a mile in their shoes, and realize we're all the same people. We all have the same struggles. We all want the same thing. Essentially. Essentially. Some people want more fame. Some people want more money. But yeah. the core things, we want health, food, not to struggle, not to, not to be, have our human rights. Not to suffer on. too much. Not to suffer. Life, life, even if the people who have the greatest life in the world have a shitty part to it. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. That's what I'm saying. It's like, it's okay to, it's okay. Like people always try to get rid of suffering completely. But I'm like, yeah. it's part of the game, right? Like, suffering uh, builds character, unfortunately. One so second, one second, one second. There we go. Sorry about that. Suffering builds character. Well, so, uh, that's what you're saying, I think. Yeah, you yeah. learn much more out of failure than you learn out of success. Uh, yeah. Being paralyzed in the hospital with a my spine degrading to Swiss cheese was probably the most painful thing you could ever go through. Like I can't describe the pain that was 24 hours a day, seven days a week for months on it. Do you ever get immune to it in a way or no, it's just never like never settles in uh, that pain. Like numbs itself. Ish. ish. Um, my tolerance to pain now is, is quite phenomenal. You know, <laughs> uh, but it's pain. Pain is pain. It's still it was painful to get there. Painful to get there. every day. Every movement was painful. Yeah. Uh, like there's a point where pain you just it just doesn't numb. It just is so so excruciating that there's nothing you can do. Dude, I was at I was taking Dilaudid like Tic Tacs, which are no morphine, and I was still in blinding pain. And I've, I've separated my knee to the point where I've looked at the bottom of my foot upside down backwards. That's how destroyed my knee has been. And that pain doesn't even come close to how much the pain hurt in my back because it's your spine. Yeah. Uh, but that suffering made me realize what I needed to do with the rest of my life. It makes me appreciate where I live now, looking out the window now and seeing the ocean every day and seeing what life can give. You know, and, and what's priorities, you know, uh, I always, you know, just like anybody wanted the, the big car, had the BMW, had everything that you wanted. Yeah. And it was only through suffering that I realized none of that was important. 
that the only thing that was important was to be in love, to love the people who are around you uh, closely. You don't have to love a lot. You know, I'm not known for having a, a billion friends, but the friends I have are very close. Yeah. Um, and, and just enjoying life to the maximum. You never know when you're going to go. When I was paralyzed, I was fit as strong as you could be. You know, I used to be a professional yeah. athlete and was degraded to nothing and could have been dead. Easy. And especially in this day of COVID, you can see it. You could be dead tomorrow. Uh, so suffering makes things sweeter and, and makes you see things clear, right? When you suffer, you no longer waste time. You're no longer like, okay, I'm suffering. This sucks. Yeah. What do I need to do to make this better? Why, why do I want, I want this to stop? Where do I want, what do I want to get to? If everything is roses and you got money and yeah, then you don't know where you want to get to. You don't, you know, unless you're blessed and you know right away when you're young, but only through suffering a bit, you know, little challenges in life, do you uh, grow, become better, build character, you know, that teaches you who you are. Uh, you know, <laughs> hey, I went through a, when I went to university, I went, I part of a fraternity and our fraternity was notorious for its initiation because uh, it was very hard, several days yeah. long. And uh, I actually loved that experience because at the end of it, I learned a tremendous amount about myself because it was extremely hard, you know. You didn't have to sleep with a pig though, did you? No, but you had sleep deprivation. You know, it was all the classic mind tricks, right? Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Just give you sleep deprivation. Just work. You walk in a circle, shovel pit. Just get you to the point where people can start playing with your mind. Sure. You know, and seeing who you are. And that's the whole point of the thing is, and then you learn a tremendous amount about yourself. You know, so every, every adversity. When I was a kid, I had, a, do you remember the cartoon Calvin and Hobbes? Sounds um, very familiar. A kid who had a pet, a uh, stuffed animal tiger, and then when no one was around, the tiger oh, okay. came to life. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. yeah that's what very, I was very funny comic. And uh, the comic was Calvin's going out for a bike ride. So the first square was Calvin going out for a bike ride, and his dad's like, "All right, have fun." And then the next four squares are Calvin crashing on his bike, mountain like upside down. Yeah. And the last square is Calvin walking in the house, dragging his bicycle by his front wheels. Not even wheels, like just dragging yeah. by his front wheel. And his dad's sitting in the paper, reading the paper, and the quote says, ah, I see you've been out building character. Yeah. And that's exactly it. Injuries build character. So to come full circle to injuries, that's where you see yourself, where you see your block. You know, if you have to recover your knee, are you going to get to the point where you can recover and have a strong knee and go cutting again, or are you always going to walk with a limp? Yeah. You know? And... How much you push yourself is, is your character. How much are you willing to, to go into pain and to suffer to get what you want? And you're willing to go all the way? Oh, I've gone pretty far. I've gone pretty <laughs> far. I gave up uh, everything I owned in Montreal on two weeks' notice. Moved here without knowing anybody really and uh, started this and, and, and gave up a lot to get this. So although I have a fantastic life here, it doesn't come with costs on the other end. Right. So yeah. now I'm further away from family. I'm further away from friends who mean a lot to me. Uh, I have very good friends here in Cabarete. My best friends are for sure in Montreal. I don't get yeah. to see them that often, you know? Uh, so not, there's no, no free lunch in this world, unfortunately, but if you're willing to also, you have to know in your heart what you want. 
Yeah. And that comes without lying to yourself. So that's where suffering makes you not lie to yourself. You know, you can lie to yourself and then when shit hits the fan, you're like, um, I've been lying to myself. So things like death, things like all life, birth, death, accidents, these things make things clear for a lot of very people. I've, I know friends who've, you know, had spouses die or, or family members die and they've said to me, you know, now I see a lot clearer, you know, that it just takes that. It takes a shaking of your foundation. Almost. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it takes an earthquake in your life to, to realize the life. ground. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm doing this all wrong or why you were doing things, thing, who you were doing it for. So those can be blocks as well. You know, like you don't follow your dreams because your parents don't believe that that was a real job yeah. or you don't, the, you know, uh, people think you can't make it in this and you can't make a living doing that, you know? So it's, it depends on what, what you want and your goals. If you want to be an artist, but you want to be a millionaire, sometimes those two things don't match up. You know what or I mean? It'll be difficult. It'll be difficult. Very few, you know? Or you do it for your kids in a way. You become a, a painter and then your paintings are worth millions once you pass away. If, 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 if they're worth, if you have that. If talent. they're worth, exactly, yeah. But if you are a mediocre painter and you know that you're never going to be Van Gogh, but you can still sell your paintings for a couple of grand, yeah. then do your painting because that's what gives you joy, right? You know? Yeah. I'm not going to be a millionaire with uncharted kite sessions and nor is it my goal. You know, yeah. um, I, I just want to do a dozen trips a year and take whatever. A dozen trips a year. Okay. 12, 12 ish plus. That's not a bad number. Well, I already do uh, like four or five here yeah. and then I do three or four in Brazil. So oh, okay. I'm already up to eight. So they, they usually come in, 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 in blocks of trips. Yeah, yeah sure. Know, one per month. So in the summer here, I do a, tri a trip every, or a camp every other weekend, every yeah. other week. So I do Ketan and week off, Yuri, week off, Muna, week off. And so I do like the summer's intense, and then I have the six weeks of relax, and then I go to Brazil and do four or five trips. And so if I can take 100 people out uh, a year and show them an amazing experience, and cover my costs and have the quality time I need for my wife, my health, my life, you know, uh, that's, that's, that's my goal. I used to be the goal of being a millionaire. I used to be the goal of having the empire. Yeah. Um, but with that comes stress with that comes the responsibilities. Uh, you know, if I had, uh, grown uncharted and i had a giant complex over this covid area you know and i had made uncharted to the point where i had a complex and employees and this and that my overhead my leverage might have collapsed me like there are kite companies that are collapsing now there are restaurants 60 percent of the restaurants in montreal are going to go out of business uh probably soon enough because of covid so the more the bigger you want to be the more you have to lose so yeah. i'm happy i've resented myself to to not find have Porsches. They like me. They'll let me drive them. That's fun. But I'm yeah. happy to have a nice motorcycle, a collection of surfboards, and health. And, and, and the health to go out and enjoy a morning. And the time to not work on the weekends. On the week, weekends, I unplug my phone, essentially, and enjoy my wife and my life and, and just take the quality time for that. Because 
that's where it's going to go one day. Yeah, no, and it's like, um, with all that being said, though, so it's like, where is it going from here? Like, where, where are you going from here? Uh, just more trips, finding uh, a little bit more of a secure home, uh, sort of a base for the camps, uh, gotcha. which I'm working on now. But uh, not is it going to be this country, or you're looking yeah, anywhere? I'll stay, I'll stay here. COVID has changed that a little bit, I think. I've been looking. Uh, Brazil's always been a nice open possibility, but uh, the world's in flux. In flux. So right now, just like anything, it's a bit of a hovering position for most businesses. Yeah. Uh, as I do kite camps, it's hard to bring people in from internationally. Yeah, uh, it's tricky. It's tricky right now. Um, I do have the flow of. Uh, individual clients which sustains me which is good so um, there are definitely and that's all I need which is fine that's all I'm happy with you know I have enough to to sustain myself put money aside and enjoy life Um, it really comes down to what happens with the earth after this what happens with COVID what happens with the United States Uh, it was quite the interesting debate the other night Um, so there will be tourism. There will be uh, enough kiters to come down and keep going. So now it's just a, even look at, we have pro kiters here who are vis- visiting because they are like, well, I don't know where else to go. I've got no commitments. I've got no competitions. You know, yeah. everyone's sort of in wait. The whole tourism industry is in wait. Uh, I think it will come back uh, in time. Yeah. Um, Differently, but it'll come back. Differently, it'll come back. So it's, uh... I think there's a big opportunity for people that are doing uh, creating more unique experiences because now if you're going to travel, you sort of want to make it worth it, especially that there might be uh, hoops to jump through to travel with like tests and quarantining yourself and whatever, whatever, whatever other mumbo jumbo you're going to have to do. And now if you're going to travel, you're not just going to want to travel to go sit next to a pool for seven days and then go back home to exactly. quarantine and make tests and do this and that. So now you're going to be like, if I'm going to go for seven days, if I'm going to go for two weeks, I want it to be an action packed, valuable trip because it might be my only trip of the year. Yeah. hundred percent. And it's, it's with the kite camps, it's a little easier, I think, because we're a small group, it's a maximum of eight people. Exactly. So it's, uh, it's sort of insulated in that way. And so that's my goal on just having sort of more of a, a one location that I can work out of so that we can keep that insulated group together. Gotcha. Um, when I would do kite trips in Cape Hatteras, I would bring in my own chef because there's not a lot of restaurant selection in uh, Outer Banks. Yeah. And so that's essentially what I'd like to do here is just turn it back into more of that where I can just bring in our own chef, make it an insulated package. And that way we don't have to worry about uh, other tourists out of this and that. Yeah. And you can go back to your country in more safety. Uh, but We'll see. It'll be interesting. Yeah. Kite, kite industry is interesting. Some companies closed right away and some have had the best three months of their career. Exactly. You know? so, yeah. <laughs> those who close quick are like, crap, I should have stayed open. Mm-hmm. And the ones who stayed like uh, are doing really, really well because people are like, well, I got nothing else to do. So I guess I'll just stay home and, and kite. Do some, yeah, exactly. It's a good uh, solo sport to do, you know, distance from everyone out in the sun, out in the ocean. And it's really an overall amazing sport, but uh, I guess it's just, it's a a bit of waiting and seeing what's going to happen. And I think with all, all that has been like 
yeah, all that's been covered. It's like, it's crazy how uh, life goes, right? Like, I don't think anyone ever expected this when they were born. And, and now it's going to be, yeah, a new adventure, a new chapter for a lot of people. I think within a couple of years, it'll return to relative normal. But uh, I think we'll you'll see masks space, for the we'll rest. Have space yeah, we'll on. just have masks. But I mean, when you go to Asia, everyone's got a ma had a mask on before COVID already, right? Mm -hmm. So if uh, when I was in Vietnam, people riding on their motorcycles, everybody had a mask on. Now, whether it was for smog or because of their previous experience with SARS, whatever it was a decade ago, yeah. uh, the, the norm of wearing a mask is already a norm in Asia. It's more of a North American thing where like, this yeah. is new. Um, so I think that that will be the big thing, uh, whether COVID mutates and kills more people, who knows, but, uh, life almost has no option. It still has to march on. People still have to yeah. get going what they're doing. Um, vaccines will come out. people, people will eventually just be like, well, listen, I've had COVID or whether herd immunity will get to a point, uh, if it gets to that, a, a lot of people would die. It's not the best solution for sure. Yeah. Um, no one knows. Anyone who thinks they know is, uh, is someone who wouldn't take kite lessons because they think they know everything, right? Sure. <laughs> uh, you gotta, what we know now, what we knew six months ago are very different than how very people true. would react. And, and also very much the same. You know, Six months ago, we didn't know as much, but we, at least we knew six months ago, we still had to wear masks and that's now even more obvious, right? So. Yeah. The things that were obvious back six months ago are now still obvious, but then the intricacies of who gets sick, how sick they get, whether intubating someone on a ventilator is the right way or not, you know, maybe people died because they were put on a ventilator when they could have not, you know, and that's some of the discussions I've read. There's Ooh. a lot of stuff there. There's a lot of stuff there. A lot of stuff. It's a new so, world, but people will still go out in it, especially kiters. They're adventurous. So exactly. There's nothing stopping them. Uh, let's end it off with, uh, I think like, what is sort of your motto or mantra that you sort of follow that sort of helps you push through everything? Uh, my mantra when I was a kid was, uh, try anything once except for a guy named Serge. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, when I was a kid, I went, uh, to summer camp. And I got invited to my friend's house after from summer camp. And uh, his mom made me this really nice cheese pizza because uh, they were Middle Eastern and they had made a few dishes that the heads were still on the animals, whether it was the bird or whatever. And so the, the plate itself didn't look that appetizing, you know, for a little white kid from Canada. Yeah. And uh, so she made me a nice cheese pizza. And uh, I, it smelled really good, but it looked like, because the thing was looking at me. Yeah, you know, I'm like, the bird's looking at me. How am I supposed to eat that? And then uh, finally, my friend was like, hey, listen, give it a try. Give it a try. Worst thing yeah. that happens is you, you get a pizza. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, uh, okay, I'll give it a try. You know, so put the food in my mouth and it was delicious. Didn't eat any of the pizza, just ate everything that was on the, on the tray. Yeah. And this happened when I was, you know, 12 years old. And from that moment, moment on, I sort of made the mantra, like, try anything. Like, the worst thing is you put something in your mouth, you don't like it, you spit it out. But it's like walking a mile in someone else's shoes. Until you do it, you can't be a judge. You can't say with any authority, this is good, this is bad, until you've done it, till you've tasted it, till you've tried it, till you've 
gone to that country until you've walked a mile in the guy's shoes in India, you don't know what life is like for him yeah. in Rajasthan, you know? So my motto has always been just as, as long as, you know, assess it, make sure it's not life-threatening, you know? <laughs> if I jump yeah. off this bridge, am I going to live? Uh, yeah. Try that one last. Try that one last. <laughs> uh, uh, but try, be open to anything. Yeah. Be open to criticism. Be open to progress, especially criticism. To change, criticism to change. You know, uh, criticism. The heart is the hardest to take. Half of it comes to the person criticizing you and how they're doing it. But if someone knows you and cares for you and is giving you a talk and not giving or just giving you like points, take yeah. it, absorb it. Don't don't take things personally. You realize that maybe what they're saying is true. Uh, and that's the thing about, you know, after my kite coaching, my kite camps, I sent out a questionnaire. What did you like? What, did you, what didn't you like? You know, what I might think was great was not great. Like one yes. day I went, we did a downwinder on a girls camp to, uh, from here to Encuentro with all the girls, with Muna and Yalu and the waves were decent size, but I didn't think they were that big. And when we got down to the end, uh, my wife was like, okay, those waves were too big for the girls. And I was like, no, they weren't. And she was like, yeah, they were, <laughs> you know, listen to me. I was with you. And I was just like, oh, I guess you're right. You know, and I was just in my own head thinking that all well, this is perfect. Yeah. But you got to take the criticism. Okay. Okay. I got, now I can know where I can set my bar for, for the wave. So what I think is perfect running great in a kite camp. I need an outside voice to tell me that was good. That was bad. And be like, okay, okay. How can I make this better? Okay. Where's the new bar? So going forward is be open. Don't judge anybody until you actually talk to them, you know, especially ju judging books by covers. Yeah. You know, uh, working in the restaurant industry, you see that a lot. I mm -hmm. used to work in fine restaurants and I would see gangster guys come in, yo, yo, yo. And I'd be like, dude, you're in the wrong place. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. this is not the restaurant for you. And then they pull out a wad of like $10,000. They're like, yeah, this is for me. I'm going to have a, the steak and the rib. You know, and I'm like, okay, it is for you. No problem. Yeah. You know, so <laughs> talk to the person get to know who they are you know don't uh... well judging in a way is a bit of a filter to help you sort of like not waste too much time in certain scenarios but then again like if you're going to commit to something it's like being open i guess you know because if you're open to every single thing you'll never get out of your house you'll stop and look at the flower you'll stop and look at the staircase oh, you'll stop uh, and talk I mean... to them and you'll you'll by the time it's 12 o'clock at night you didn't even make it down the three steps you're like jesus you gotta go home now yeah <laughs> but, but people uh, talk about to get you yeah, yeah just just listen to, listen to someone's story. doesn't mean you have to agree to it. doesn't mean you sure. have to, you know, uh, say yes or no or take or, or waste your time on it. You know, be open, yeah. listen. If it's a waste of time, move Just on. Move on. on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but, you know, uh, find, this, find out the stories of people. People have, you think you've got a tough life? Most people have a tougher life than you. Exactly. <laughs> Walk the mile in their shoes and realize why they were late today or why what didn't work for them. And that's, that's the key to being a good employer as well, is understand what happens to your employee when they're outside of the office that will affect them inside, you know, their home life, their, their school life, their mental health, all that. And that's sort of uh, tying it back to why you, what you're saying is like, why are you even like doing these talks or what's the point of them? And I think it's sort of this, right? It's sort of like peeling the onion, hearing, the different views perspectives of people right this is it yeah. and um 
breaking bread this is the new breaking bread or versions of it but uh, yeah breaking, breaking bread, bread. Is, <laughs> is exactly the best possible so like my kite camps are for sure you're going to learn a ton and you are going to improve your riding two years in one week but it's the breaking bread part that is the the enjoyable part it's you know we're going to kite for a couple hours a day but we're going to sit at dinner for three hours yeah. you're going to talk and you're going to have an amazing dinner and Nothing sure. better than after a full day on the water, having tuna tartare and great food and great wine and great conversation with people who are like-minded. And that's where you get inspiration to travel. Someone who on that trip has been somewhere you want to go. You know, yeah. oh, you've been to Zanzibar. Oh, what was it like? Oh, it was great. I know a guy there. Let me hook you up with Marcel. And then yeah. you send him there and they go there. And so talking to people is where you get first-hand accounts of what they've been through and then when you talk to them you get to know their personality so if they had x experience when they were in china yeah. you can either personality and why they had that type of experience you know or if you see a person who's like you and they had a great time in uh, jakarta you're like well i'm very similar to you and we'll get along you know and uh and you just make, make connections with people breaking bread and uh, they'll go a long way. I like that. I like that idea of breaking bread. Mm-hmm. Sort of, it is, and that's sort of also where I was thinking about with your camps, where there's like a lot of value. Like the water time is fun, but I think a lot of the fun also is during the meals and the hangouts and all that. You know, that's where you. Yeah, yeah. The uh, every you know end of every session, we all jump into Extreme Hotel or wherever the camp is that day. Yeah. And we have a few beers before we all take off to get our showers before dinner. You know. Yeah couple beers couple uh, a couple of jokes about that crash or that whatever go take a shower you come back for dinner and then you, you break bed and then i make a point of making sure everyone changes spots for dinners you know sure. at least for the first couple of dinners so you get to know the person beside you you know where are you from oh you're from san francisco i've been there where are you from oh i'm from uh, fortaleza you know and uh it's really interesting the jobs people have the things they do you know uh you know? Exactly. There's not one. There's no one single path to to making it through this life. No one single path, and there's no and and kite porters aren't one type of person, you know. Yeah. They, uh, <clears throat> they are adventurous people, and they come from all kinds of walks of life. From from poor guys who are like ski bums, but it's kite bums, to you know Bill Tai to uh, Fabrice, who's the biggest uh, angel investor in the world. You know, yeah. a big kiter, and so whether it's any of these guys all the way down to the local guy, you'll see Fabrice on the beach here, just hanging out with uh, the local Dominican kids. Kiting. Yeah. You know, there's no, there's no, I'm worth $10 billion and you're worth uh, nothing. They're, they, we're all equal on the beach. We're all friendly on the beach yeah. and uh, brings us all together. That's an interesting sport. That's why I like it. That's why kite surfing I find, I guess it, it does happen a bit in surfing. It does happen in some of those, but I find that the, I find the kite community very a unique community, you know, out of all the out of all the sports that I at least have practice. Maybe there's some overlaps in skiing and snowboarding and stuff, but kiteboarding definitely attracts a wide array of people, and also the interactions between the people are more like leveled. You know, it's like because you interact mostly off the water, you don't interact really on the water much unless you get tangled, yeah. and that's a whole other story. <laughs> But, but even on the even on the beach, uh, kiting forces you to interact because unless you get to the point where you're self-launched so, and self-landing, yeah. uh, you get someone launch you, someone land you. Yeah. You show up at the spot if you're a new tourist right away. The first thing I do when I show up at any spot is I find the locals. Hey, what? Tell me about the spot. You know yeah. where the where's the reef? Where's the rocks? Where's what not to go? What to do? Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Um, when I first started kiting, uh, I would take watermelons with me to the kite spot. And when I'd come off the water, I'd slice up a watermelon into 50 pieces and I'd walk around and I'd hand out watermelons yeah. just to start conversation with people. And then, uh, especially because kiting is, is, a, is a gear, can be gear heavy, depending if you're a real tech guy. Yeah. You have so many questions. Hey, how do you like that Nash kite? You know, how do you like it? Can I, what, what do you think of four fins, three fins? What do you think of this? So that just naturally gets kite talk going. And there's, and t- kiting itself is such a technical sport that there's so much to talk about. Yeah, there's you so can just keep going and going. You could t- kite talk for days. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah. That'll be another thing yeah, one day. Do. The kite talks. Kite talks day. Yeah. Well, Andrea. Um, yeah, kite, kiting is technically uh, very. I don't know if it's cutting out. Great talk. Good time. Or, I don't know if it, yeah, is it, is it cutting out or is it me? But in any case, no, it was great. And a little bit. <laughs> you know, Andreas, uh, it was a great talk. It was a pleasure. And I think this is like a calling because it's the internet just glitching out all of a sudden. So I don't know if it's you or me. Maybe now it's okay. You look like it's okay. The internet's what? <laughs> it's glitching out. The internet telling us we got to hang up. That's what I think it's saying almost. Yeah. But I don't, know if Norte isn't what it used to be. <laughs> uh, I don't know if there's anything you want to plug in, uh, how people can find you, how people can unchartedkitesessions.com. Unchartedkitesessions.com. Oh, okay. I don't know if that recorded. That, everything's yeah, recorded. Is that, unchartedkitesessions.com and find me. I have a phone number. You can WhatsApp me. Yeah, you can send me a, an email, a WhatsApp. Call me. I'll answer the phone. And uh, come down and become a better kiter and enjoy the Dominican experience because the Dominican Republic is hands down one of the best waterman places in the world. There are some places definitely in the world that, you know, Cape Town gets windy as can be for two, three months of the year, but the rest of the year it doesn't have what we have. Whereas Dominican Republic, it's windy, it's wavy, it's crystal clear waters, and it's direct flight for a lot of places. That is true. No, it's a unique spot. And it just comes to show if you came here 35 years ago in 1985, then there might be something here. Oh, it's I travel for a living for kitesurfing. And uh, there are some spots that are really good and have, like I say, a good point break or this or that. But the north coast of the Dominican Republic is uh, hard to beat anywhere in the world. So... I wish more people could come sure. to see it. Especially when different things light up at different times. When wave season, huh? No, I wish more people come to visit. You know, like it's a good uh, trip to do. And it's not for everyone, but it is for yeah. a lot of people. Yeah, if you're an adventurous person and you uh, don't need to be uh, pampered and uh, have uh, servants follow you around and you're just a true, natural, authentic person, North coast of the Dominican Republic is uh, the place for you. Yeah. Well, well, that's said, Andreas. Thanks again. All right. Hopefully see you in the water soon. I've been winging a lot. I haven't been, no I, problem. I got, nice my, I got a new foil and, uh, but I'm going to be out there foiling in the lighter days and then I'm going to be winging most of the other days. I got a new, some new gear in, so I'm excited. I was testing it yesterday and it's good. 
Oh, I'm uh, going to try the wing soon. I'm going to try the wing to. soon. It's next on my list. I spend a lot of time foiling, a lot of time coaching. But uh, next on the gear to buy. I got myself a garage, so now I have finally more room to uh, put more gear in. Now it's all, it comes down to space in the end now. It's just, you need space to hold all the toys because if you don't have space, it's a chaos. So much space. But alrighty. So we'll end it here and my front entrance. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Appreciate it and have a good one. Peace out. You too. Take care, Charlie. Bye.